Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series, Faith That Works. So turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Devastation of Earthly Wisdom. We've all heard stories of natural disasters, you know, the kind we witness vicariously through television screens and numerous websites. I mean, those are the stories of floods that wipe out a city or a hurricane that tears roofs from houses, an earthquake that leaves buildings damaged, a a tsunami that unexpectedly sweeps thousands of people away, a a hurricane that, that cuts through a city, making it look like a debris field or the eruption of a volcano in which human civilization is is buried under a large pile of lava. The most common word heard over and over again at such a moment is the word devastation. Now, that word devastation brings images to mind. It speaks of ruin and destruction, wreckage, then followed by deep, lasting pain. Those who experience it don't quickly bounce back and and return to normal. Their lives bear the scars of devastation. They, They don't recover but they learn how to live with the wounds that are now a part of their lives. And when we, who have not encountered it, think about them, I mean, we should be thankful that that God in his mercy has withheld such devastation from us. You know, the text from James that we're going to study today speaks of another kind of devastation. It's the devastation that comes to people when those who are in positions of prominence rely on a kind of wisdom that James calls the wisdom from below. He says it's, it's demonic. It's, it's the wisdom of earth. He means the kind of wisdom that we get from our televisions or newspapers or philosophers or the kind your buddies might give you in the bar or that cutthroat business meeting that you attended last night. You rely on that kind of wisdom whose origins come from our world and our culture, and then devastation follows. Lest we think this is all hyperbole, think again. James will describe the consequences that some of us are living in right now. So let's read what he says. I'm reading James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, just a spoiler alert, the text before us is filled with details that take some time to unpack. And so, for the sake of clarity, I'm going to discuss this vital text in two days, today and tomorrow. So, since I won't complete my discussion today, you're going to be required to continue to listen to me tomorrow. But but don't feel hard done by. 
This really is a vital text, and it's meant, if we pay careful attention to it, to spare us from devastation. James knows that the Christian church is standing at the threshold of calamity, but he wants to spare us from that which doesn't need to happen. You know, at first reading of this scripture, it's hard to escape the immediate impression of of just how harsh this passage is. Accusations abound, murder, fighting, adultery, accusations of hatred of God, accusations of being the devil's allies, accusations of being the kind of sinner that that can only be helped if, if you're overcome by howls of wretched sorrow. You just have to, says James, understand how bad you are. I think if I spoke this way to a congregation of God's people gathered on a Sunday morning, I mean, most of my hearers would be offended. I mean, what right do you have to speak to us in this manner? But here's a Bible passage that speaks exactly in this manner. And it's Pastor James, the pastor of the influential church in Jerusalem, the man who has a very large bully pulpit. He's speaking this way. And furthermore, in this case, he's speaking under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's startling to hear him speak this way because James is speaking to us of the potential in any local congregation to complete and utter devastation. Two questions immediately confront us. First, who is James speaking to? And second, what was going on in this church? So let's consider both questions in order. First, who is James speaking to? You know, there are some who argue that James must be addressing false Christians in the church who are tearing everything apart. So these are really unbelievers masquerading as believers. And in this passage, James calls them out. At least that's how some see this passage. And others, and I'm among those others, argue that can't be the case. The people in verse 1 whom James addresses as you are the same ones he's been addressing in the entire letter. Let me illustrate that. Chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Is this one of the trials? Well, if it is, it's being experienced by brothers. Now to chapter 1, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. See, James knows the church, Christians are being deceived. Now to chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. You know, James addresses Christians who are very quick to become angry. They must resist the impulse, and he addresses them as brothers. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, My brothers show no partiality. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. And then finally, in chapter 3, verse 12, Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? You see, in every warning, James refers to those as brothers. He sees them as God's redeemed, fellow believers, men and women, redeemed by Christ. These references to brother must mean, at least so I would argue, that these are the same people, brothers and sisters, who are also addressed in chapter 4. Furthermore, the term brother, even though it's absent from chapters 4, verses 1 to 10, it reappears again in chapter 4, verse 11, saying, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. See, that suggests that James is giving a warning to people that he honestly believes are Christians. But if that's the case, how can a genuine Christian, chosen from before the foundation of the world, rescued out of darkness into the wonderful light of God, given his spirit, I mean, all of these things, how can they actually be in danger of becoming the enemies of God? 
let me suggest to you what I think is going on. We've noted that James is written to help us discover whether our faith is real. Here's a definition of real faith. When genuine believers read a warning like the one we find here, their hearts become alarmed, and they actually do what James tells them to do. That is, what redeemed people do when they're confronted by their sin is they repent. But unredeemed people pay no heed and they keep on going. That's why this language is so intense. It's meant, as the great pastor Jonathan Edwards once said, to drive the spike of fear into the slumbering heart. James knows that only language this strong will actually get your attention. And if this language doesn't grab you, then maybe, just maybe, the term brother or sister really doesn't apply. Now, to my second question, I mean, what's going on in this church to warrant such a diatribe? You know, is it something nasty or or what? And the answer may surprise us. First, we know that these Christians preferred the rich over the poor. We know that they had a habit of saying, I believe in Jesus without being obedient to Jesus. There was an obedience problem, which James called faith without works. We also know that they used their tongues to slander others and sometimes curse. And, And we know there was jealousy and selfish ambition among them. Well, someone might say, yeah, that's bad, but frankly, it's not that unusual. Kind of thing happens all the time in in churches and among Christians. I mean, we disobey, we speak evil of others. You know, Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven. But James says, wait a minute. What you're describing, this common thing, it's devastation. You've become a debris field. There are wounded people who will bear wounds because of what you're doing for the rest of their lives. And says James, I'm about to lay out for you how great is the destruction. You may not have paid attention to the devastation, but, but here it is. Notice again the first sentence, it comes in the form of a question. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Clearly, we can see that there are disagreements in this church. There's disunity. Perhaps at times it had erupted into arguments. That can happen. Sometimes arguments get out of hand. And it must have been this way in the church that James is addressing. Hi, it's Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. You know, we believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Neufeld available on this station. But we know there may be times when you miss the radio program, so we wanted to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video with Dr. John. But you can also learn how to subscribe for our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our mission is to serve you so that Bible teaching you can trust is accessible to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information or to make a donation to this ministry, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. James describes the disunity of either one church or a series of churches in some very harsh language. He uses words like murder. 
Now, does that mean that someone had actually murdered someone else in the congregation of believers? I doubt that. But James insists on using this kind of violent language regarding the kinds of fights that he was witnessing in this church among believers. You know, in the 17th century, the non-Christian Jewish philosopher Spinoza said this about the Christians he had observed, and I quote, I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely, love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria for their faith." End quote. You know, we've all seen that. Christian people locked in a knockout fight. Horrible things are said. Accusations are leveled. Character assassination is now underway. Here's what, in my viewpoint, is the greatest fuel that continues to fire this kind of animosity. Christian people judge other Christian people by what they think is going on on the inside. That is, we've come to conclusions about what motivates others. No, not their actual actions, but what we think motivated their actions. We say, that person did that because he was envious, or he hates someone, or he's trying to hide something from us. You see, our judgment of the inner attitudes of someone, that which we can't actually see, this often causes many of us to form the very worst conclusions about someone. That kind of thing escalates. Once the mind is convinced that the the person you disagree with is as bad as you think they are, no good can come. Whatever they now do only reinforces your already held opinions. And of this kind of a fight, there's no way back. Whole churches are decimated, families are torn apart, reputations lie in ruins. Sometimes people stop believing in God and and wander from the faith because of what they've seen in a local church. Others become intensely bitter. They, They remember what was done to them or to those whom they loved and are marked with bitterness for a lifetime. I've met these kinds of people. I I weep for them. I've seen it in their faces. Something happened years ago, and it's marked them from that day on. They are devastated. Their lives are debris fields of emptiness. All spiritual virtues have, have been torn up before their watching eyes and lie in ruins. And nobody knows how to rebuild that. That's why so many people live with a deep sense of disillusionment about the church, about the community of God's people. You know, I wonder if I'm describing someone like that. You know, perhaps you who are listening to me was wounded by your local church and you haven't been back for years. How terrible that is. You're not only saved unto Christ. Don't you know you're saved into a community of God's people? But now you don't know how to have faith again. Now, look, James is not saying that some things are not worth fighting for. You know, some things are. But destroying a person through slander is never of God. Instead, as James has said in chapter 3, verse 17, we must be open to reason, marked by gentleness and full of mercy. So let's reread verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? See, James tells us that the real war is going on in the inside, not between us and others. You know, the word for passion here is the Greek word hedone, from which we get our English word hedonism. It's a word which speaks about the desire for pleasure, for self-satisfaction, for ultimately pleasing myself first. 
this pleasure impulse is at war within us. See, once you and I become believers, we receive a new nature. But we still have the flesh, that that impulse in our body that leads us into sin. Our job is to beat the flesh down by the Spirit. Unless we beat the flesh, it will beat us. And when it beats us, when it wars within ourselves so as to win the war, we become vindictive people. Look at it this way. God calls you to seek the kingdom first. The flesh calls us to seek the pleasure impulse first. Don't let anyone keep you from what you want, says the unlawful passions within you. Now the war is engaged. But what if the unlawful passions win the field and hold the battleground? Well, what then? Well, let's go to the first part of verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. See what happens? Once you're ruled by the flesh, you're bound to be frustrated. You'll want things that you'll never be able to get by remaining submissive to God. Some things you want the most, God won't give you. It was Henry David Thoreau that said, Most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with that song still in them. You know, as the desperation rises, you'll strike out at those people who stand in the way of that which you've convinced yourself is rightfully yours. Now, let's stop and get as specific as we can. Skip ahead with me to verse 4 and see that James is talking about something he calls friendship with the world. You know, for James, the hedonistic pleasure principle that, that puts your needs first is the same thing as friendship with the world. So we have a question, what is the world? You know, the, the word world here doesn't refer to the physical planet or, or for that matter to the created order. It means something else. The standard text is 1 John 2, 15 to 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Notice that for John, as he describes the world, the world consists of three things, the three fundamental values that cover it. Consider those three things that John says comprises love for the world. It refers, first of all, to illicit passions. Sexual satisfaction, to be sure, are among those things. The second refers to those things that money can buy. The third refers to all those things that you want to accomplish, all those things you want people to sit up and notice you for. See, in most cases, this is the desire to assert power and authority. It's been said that young men struggle to master sexual desire, but but old men often give in to an aphrodisiac far greater than sexual desire. It's the aphrodisiac of power. Money, sex, and power. The, The lower nature wants those things. Give me that, it says, and I'll be satisfied. And the world promises it. It has numerous examples of people who have that. You should have it too. Do it this way. You're going to get it. And once you've bought into that value system, we say, deny me of that and I'll start an all-out nuclear war. And what's the result? James says that it is unmet worldly desire that leads to the destruction of relationships and utter carnage in the local church. Love, mercy, grace, healing, reasonableness, peace, making sure we have both sides of an argument before we make choices and form judgments. I mean, all of these things are the wisdom from above, but they're now roundly rejected. 
You know, those things won't put a Porsche in your garage or give you the dream relationship or, or make you the prime minister, won't make you a published author or the person best known in, in your field or the person with a perfect marriage or whatever it is that you want. But more than that, the wisdom from above won't give you the respect and power over others. No, to get that, you're going to have to be a self-promoter. You have to make sure that you win the fight and that you don't lose. I know of a man who decided he would step out of leadership in his church, but as he thought about it, he realized others would win, and so he redoubled his efforts, and he utterly devastated his church and the spiritual lives of many. What will he say on Judgment Day? James says, that which causes fights and quarrels, what causes the breakup of congregations, mistrust among believers, full-out animosity among the people of God, is that our passions are at war within us. The greatest battles are not fought on the floor of congregational meetings. They are fought within us as we seek to nurture godliness as opposed to getting our own way. And so says James, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. God, have mercy on us. There must be a way out of this. Well, yes, there is. But we'll have to involve a heartfelt, overwhelming response of grief and repentance over sin. It involves that we turn from that which we once embraced. It involves that we become deeply remorseful for our own sins and that we turn to Christ. John, I wonder in some respect why we struggle as the church at times is because we bring worldly wisdom into the church and we depend upon that wisdom rather than depending upon biblical wisdom. Yeah, you know, we were raised with worldly wisdom. We live in a world of worldly wisdom, and worldly wisdom is about me first and me-centeredness and the assassination of others and all of these kind of things. It's, you know, coveting and not obtaining, as, as James says. So we fight and quarrel, and, and that's just uh, what we need to learn. I mean, the grace of God in a local congregation teaches us to say no to one kind of thinking and to say yes to another kind of thinking. And it's hard to learn that. You know, I think about it. In the past, we've called worldly external things, like the kind of a dress that a woman wears and so forth, rather than the internal attitudes of the heart. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. At Back to the Bible Canada, our mission is simple. Teach the Bible. The perfect guidance and instruction on how we are to live our lives is already available in His Word. The Bible is the only self-help book you'll ever need. This month, we have an outstanding resource to help prime your hearts to receive the wisdom of the Bible. Before You Open Your Bible by Matt Smethurst is an excellent book that shares how we can position our mindset to one of gratitude and humbleness in preparation for reading the Word. We're confident this will help positively influence the way you view your Bible study. And that's why we've made this resource available for you for free for the month of July. 
So simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your free copy or to send a financial gift to support this Bible teaching ministry.